All right, Revelation 1, 4 to 8, God's Word says this. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, I want to pause there for just a second. Uh, John is addressing seven specific churches. If you've read Revelation, you'll learn in the next chapter, chapter 2, which we're not going to get to in this series, uh, there's seven different churches that John will address. But also in Revelation, when we see that number seven, it speaks of this. It speaks of completeness. So John is not only writing to those seven specific churches, but as this is God's Word, he's writing to the church throughout all of history. So this speaks also to our local church. He says these words, grace to you and peace. Grace to you and peace. And he says, from him who is and who was and who is to come. He says, and from the seven spirits. There's our number seven again, complete. I believe John's referring to the Holy Spirit here. He says this, who are before his throne. And then he says, verse five, I want you to give this special attention. And from Jesus Christ, he says, the faithful witness, here are these titles, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And it says, and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Verse 7, it says, Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. And then verse 8, I love this verse. He says this, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. Seems kind of peculiar to be in Revelation in a Christmas series, right? Revelation is going to be kind of our springboard for other texts. We'll sit in this text for the next three weeks, uh, but verse 5 is just going to be kind of our springboard for where we're going to head each week as we unpack these titles of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. One of my favorite getaways here uh, since we've moved to Kentucky, I've mentioned this before, is the Parklands Park System that runs throughout uh, Jefferson County, stretching all throughout that county out uh, east of us here. A Broad Run Park is the southernmost area of that park system. It's also the closest park to where uh, I live. And if you go into Broad Run Park, uh, there's a lot of different changes in elevation. When you come into the park, you'll, you'll come over a bridge that goes over Floyd's Fork flowing, flowing through there, and there's this low-lying plain that you can kind of walk around. Uh, when my family goes there, we typically park down by that paddling access there, uh, right over that bridge. And there's a trail that runs out of there up into the hills through the forest called Karst Climb. And Karst Climb takes you up to the higher elevations of Broad Run Park to a place that I call the Overlook. I don't know if that's actually what it's called, but that's what we call it. We go to the Overlook, and when you stand at the Overlook, you can look down on the back of that hill, and there's an old farmhouse down there. There's some beautiful property up to the, off to the left with some rolling hills uh, in the summertime. There's this bright green grass out there. Uh, if you look down directly in front of you, you see the cornfields and kind of the rows going through. And we know that there's trails down in there, but you can't really see all the details of the trails. Floyd's Fork also runs on that side. You can see uh, Floyd's Fork. Off in the distance, you can see Turkey Run Park, which is the next park in the park system. And if you guys have been to that park, it's famous for uh, its gigantic yellow silo that you can climb up inside and you can look out and kind of have this 
360 degree panoramic view. And the beauty of this spot in Broad Run is when you're up this high, you get to see a lot of everything all around you. Okay, but there's a few things that are missing. I don't know all the intricacies of the details of the trails down there below. I don't know all the rocks. If I was to go into Floyd's Fork and kayak through there, I don't know where all the boulders are up from that vantage point. I don't know if there's cars in the garage of that farmhouse that's down there below. I don't know if there's actually ears of corn on the corn down because I can't see that type of detail. Why do I tell you this story this morning? Similar to this overlook that you would come to in Broad Run, if you haven't gone up there, you need to go there. Broadwind Park is just, it's a beautiful, beautiful place. Similar to this, that's my shameless plug this morning. Similar to this overlook, we're going to approach, generally when we approach a series in Scripture, we approach it verse by verse, kind of unpacking God's truths. We're going to approach this series, though, with a little bit different mindset, with a similar mindset to being up on that hill and kind of looking down on things, not going into all the details, but seeing some of the big theme, themes in Scripture that we can, uh, we can draw out. So we're going to dance around a lot all throughout Scripture. I'm kind of excited, and I'm looking forward to this. We're not looking at the deep details of the immediate text of Revelation, In fact, we're really going to zero in on verse 5, but I provided all of it so that you have just kind of a context of what we are discussing this morning and in the next few weeks. Verse 5 provides us a a springboard for the content for this series, uh, which is the fulfillment of Jesus as prophet, priest, and king as we anticipate, I love Christmas, the celebration of his birth come Christmas Day. So as we embark... Uh, on this journey through Scripture, we'll, we'll likely keep, you're going to keep one finger in Revelation, and we're going to kind of dance around through the pages of Scripture. We'll also have the passages up here uh, on the screen uh, for you. We're going to journey throughout the Bible, tracing Jesus' fulfillment of these three offices, and each week we're going to tackle a different one. You'll notice the title of our sermon this week is Faithful Witness. We're going to be looking at Jesus' work as prophet, as prophet, brings us to our main idea for this morning. Our main idea is this. Jesus fulfilled the threefold office of prophet, priest, and king, securing our freedom from sin. Securing our freedom from sin. Before I get too far into this, uh, in your notes you'll notice I credited a a few different scholars and pastors and writers. Uh, I drew a lot from Anthony Carter's work in the book Blood Work, and I want to give credit where credit is due. And also from uh, New Testament scholar Ben Glad, I I drew on some of his work from a a book I recently read. So I credited both of those guys to make sure that for full disclosure that's out there. Uh, I drew heavily on their work as I studied and and prepared for uh, this sermon series. Why do we, family, focus on these particular office? Why would we have a whole series on this? If you think back, we're going to think back a lot on the Old Testament today. If you think back to the Old Testament, you'll find major figures in the Old Testament falling in those three categories. Prophet, priest, and king. We think of David, King David, right? He was a king. We think of the prophet Elijah. And we think in reading through uh, 1 Samuel, we think in, in the beginning of, of 1 Samuel, you're, you're brought to this character, Eli the priest. 
We think of Moses. We just did a series over the summer in the book of Exodus. Moses, in my opinion, kind of embodies all three of those offices. He's, he's an incredible leader, so he has these kingly gifts. He's, he's a prophet in the sense that he speaks God's word and he teaches God's word. And he's a priest offering intercession on behalf of the people and, and striving to rid God's people of that which is unclean. That's what a priest does. But each of these men presents a problem. Because each of them fell short. David, as we know from Scripture, was an adulterer and a murderer. We're certain that Elijah was not sinless. He was not a sinless man. And he also, uh, throughout his ministry, shows the devastating effects of actually living in a fallen creation. He suffered at times with bouts of depression and hunger. We know Eli failed to leave a a godly lineage with his sinful sons abusing the priesthood for their own selfish gain. Moreover, family, these three offices get at the heart of who we are, who we were created to be. We were, according to God's word in Genesis chapter 1, we were made in the image and likeness of God with this purpose to reflect the glory of God, not only uh, were Adam and Eve to reflect the, the glory of God in the Garden of Eden, but in all of creation, expanding the glory of the one true God to the dark recesses of creation. They were to know and understand and speak the instruction of God as prophets, ridding the world of that which is unclean as priests, and having dominion over the creation as kings, as leaders. But they, we, failed. We fell short. We didn't take God at His word. We were left hopelessly flawed, helpless, lost in our own sin and shame, with no hope in our own ability. That's the bad news this morning. But in this Advent season, we know of the hope that came some 2,000 years ago. That's why it's such a joyous morning as we sing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Glory to the newborn King. We know of the hope that came some 2,000 years ago as a baby in the manger in Bethlehem. Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior. Look into Revelation 1.5 now again. John says this, And from Jesus Christ, again, focusing on these three titles, faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. And hear this gift. To him who loves us, he loves us, and freed us from our sins by his blood. This week we look at this first title as faithful witness. Jesus is the fulfillment of the role of the faithful witness or the faithful prophet. The Bible doesn't hide this. This isn't in your notes, but right out of the gate and reflecting on John's gospel, he declares this in verse 1. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and, and Word is capitalized. It's a name. He says, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John here in, in that passage, in John 1.1, 1, 1, uses the, for word, he uses the Greek word logos or logos. In our English language, obviously we translate that as, as word, but we could also put expression in there. 
It's a title of Jesus. He is the Word of God. He is the very action of God's creative movement. Everything, John says, happens through Jesus. When we think of a prophet, we think of of words, right? Speaking words. Jesus, though, is, John says, the very Word of God. He's the Word embodied. What exactly then is a prophet? New Testament scholar, if you look uh, to your notes, Ben Glad says it this way, a prophet is someone who hears God's voice, speaks on his behalf, and embodies divine truth. I want to pause here for a second. When we think of prophets, we think of prophecy, we always think of kind of a future telling, but primarily the Old Testament prophets spoke to the people of Israel in the present time, correcting them and calling them to repentance. The, the foretelling of the future was what was to come if they didn't respond in following God correctly according to his statutes and laws and commandments, keeping his commands. Again, a definition of prophet is someone who hears God's voice, speaks on his behalf, and embodies divine truth. Jesus' family is all of these. Except I want, I want to make this distinction. He, he not only hears God's voice, he is God's voice. John 1.14 tells us this. He says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He says, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. He says, full of grace and truth. Now we understand who, who this word or, or logos is that, that John speaks of. It is family Jesus. One famous modern paraphrase of the Bible of, the, of this passage says this. I, I love this. It says, the word became flesh and blood, and he says, and moved into the neighborhood. That's what Jesus did. He came. The Messiah has come, unassuming at this point, and humble, born to a poor virgin girl. And so how does, now we ask this question, how does this unassuming baby fulfill the office of prophet? How does Jesus fulfill the office of prophet? That's our question for this morning. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 1 to 11. We're going to look at a direct encounter here with the enemy of God, the deceiver, the liar, Satan. Matthew calls him the devil. Says this in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. No kidding. About 10.30 a.m. in the office here, you might find me rummaging through the leftover trunk or treat candy down here in the kids' ministry looking for some more peanut butter cups, right? He went 40 days and 40 nights, verse 3, and the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, this is Jesus, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
Verse 5, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Jesus, in just this one section of Scripture, accomplishes what none of us have been able to accomplish. He also does it in a fashion reminiscent of Israel after their delivery from Egyptian enslavement. If you recall, when, when they were delivered, they they came out and they went through the waters of the Red Sea. If, if you've read this passage before in chapter 4, you'll know just before this, Jesus has been baptized. He was brought through the waters. And then Israel was in the wilderness, hungry, and they, be, and they began longing to go back to where they had come from. Jesus here is is led into the wilderness and fast, it says, for 40 days, reminiscent of the 40 years that Israel spent in the wilderness. And at that moment, at this moment here, looking at Jesus in his humanity, physically weak, hungry, tired, lonely, the tempter comes. Just like he did, if you think back to Genesis chapter 3, just like he did in the garden. When Adam, commissioned by God to, to oversee and care for his garden, let his guard down. Just like the tempter did in the doubts of the Israelites in the wilderness. And so how does Jesus respond? We're going to look at, at three ways Jesus responds. He responds in this way first, with the knowledge of the truth. And you notice I want you to change it. With your pen, I want you to write truth with a big T. The big case T. Uppercase T. Knowledge of the truth. Throughout his, his interaction with Satan, did you notice how Jesus responded? Do you notice what it conveys about Jesus' knowledge of God's Word, what we would call the truth? He says this in, in verse 4, Matthew 4, verse 4. He's, he says, but, but he answered, and he says these three words, It is written. It is written. Now, family, we're going to dance back and forth. I told you this. Think back now to the the first temptation by Satan to Adam and Eve in the garden. The tempter came in what form? As a serpent, right? You see, the the tempter doesn't come in obvious forms. He, He came slithering into the garden. And he posed this question, did God really say... To which Eve responded with something close to what God said, but not exactly. Adam and Eve did not hold to God's word. 
They only had to follow a a few very simple commands that God had given them. He said these things, be fruitful and multiply. He said, have dominion over the garden and multiply it, thus spreading the glory of God throughout all of creation. He said, eat from anything in the garden. From anything, you can have anything. But do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God didn't say anything about touching the fruit. Adam and Eve even softened the punishment as they conversed with this serpent. Where God says that you will surely die, Eve simply says, you'll die. But in our present text, Jesus' obedience, the fulfillment of of his role as prophet through the knowledge of the Word of God is clearly evident. It is written. The Old Testament prophets would have said this, Thus says the Lord. You see, we hear in, in the modern church, we hear from guys that are like, I, I'm going to speak a word of prophecy, and this might come true. That's not true prophecy, because the prophets of old said this, Thus says the Lord. They were certain when they received the word. Jesus knows God's word, and he uses it to repel the enemy of God. If we look to, to Jesus' younger life, he was, he was at the temple, he's with his family. When they had left to go back home, uh, unbeknownst to them, they, they realized that Jesus was left back there. Can you imagine the panic in mom? And when they came back, probably frantically looking for the boy, it says this in Luke 2, 46-47, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. I love the detail. Jesus sitting among the, the teachers, listening, asking, and it says they were amazed at his understanding. You see, Jesus had a knowledge of the truth. He had the knowledge of the truth. And so it poses this question to us, family, Christian. Do you have knowledge of the truth of the Word of God? Is it entrusted to your heart so that when the tempter comes, Jesus didn't pull out his Old Testament and start flipping. Hold up, Satan. Let me. I got something for you. Just a second, though. No, he knew it right off the top of his. It is written. So that when when the tempter comes, and and here's the thing, he will come. You can combat him with with truth. Okay, not not the half-baked truths of like Adam and Eve did, but the real truth. No one likes half-cooked food. I can remember my brother works up here in Louisville every once in a while, and he loves uh, to go out to breakfast at a certain place that's going to remain nameless, but there's one on every corner, and they're kind of yellow around the top, and they're open 24 hours a day. <laughs> and so I go and meet him over there for breakfast, and I, I learned a lesson the first time I went in there that I probably need, because I like a little yolk, so I asked for my eggs over easy. I probably should ask for them over medium. Because when they came, like, it was like jelly and eggs, you know what I mean? No one wants an egg that's not cooked all the way through. I mean, some of you may, but you're kind of odd. I'm sorry. 
That's what Adam and Eve combated, combated the tempter with, is just half ideas and convey the whole truth of Jesus embodies the entire truth of God in the flesh. How else does, does Jesus fulfill the office of prophet? Number two, obedience to the truth. Obedience to the truth. I want you, family, to think, think of the Garden of Eden again. The tempter slithers into the garden. He should have never have been there in the first place. After all, Adam was given a command to have dominion over the garden, casting out that which did not belong, but, but Adam didn't do that. He heard God's instruction. Surely he knew it. Surely he told Eve, and it seems like he might have even added a little bit more to what he communicated to her. Don't, don't eat it. Don't even touch it. The subtle temptation of the enemy whispers, slithers, woos your heart. Adam and Eve disobeyed. And they disobeyed all the offices that God had commissioned them for. They were to be prophet, priests, and kings. As prophets, they were to hear God. They were to speak truth and embody divine truth. As priests, they were to cast out that which did not belong in God's holiest place. Just as the Old Testament priests cleansed the tabernacle and temple by keeping out all that which was unfit for God's presence. And as kings, they were to have dominion over the garden. But Adam and Eve failed to obey. But now we look to Jesus. Verses 8 to 11 in Matthew chapter 4. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written. There it is again. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Notice there, if you think about the Ten Commandments, Jesus is fulfilling the Ten Commandments right there. You shall worship the Lord your God, and and only him you serve. The Ten Commandments say this, you shall have no other gods before me. Jesus, perfectly obedient. In this section, Satan comes right out and says what he has always desired. He wants to be God. But the best he can be, family, this is the best Satan can be. He's a fake. He's a phony. He's a less than counterfeit. He's a counterfeit God. He knows the Messiah has come because it's clear. We learned something else about Satan here. It's clear in this section that Satan also knows Scripture. And so he takes a swing at it here. Will the Son of God bow at my feet? Jesus says, no. Be gone, Satan. Jesus not only knows Scripture... For even Satan knows Scripture, but he is also, hear this word, walk away with this word, he is obedient to the truth of God. He keeps and obeys. And he declares, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Notice what happens to the devil. Where does he go? 
he leaves. Reminds me of middle school when I used to look at the cute girls and ask them out to the dance and they would say this to me, poof, be gone, right? That was embarrassing. (laughs) But I got the one I wanted right down here. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Jesus knew his eternal purpose. He knew his role in the Godhead, his commission. And he, thank God fully obeyed the command, decrees, law, and will of God. Satan is just a counterfeit. In the summer times, we would go down to Mexico for mission trips, and when I was in high school, I like Oakley sunglasses. The name brand Oakleys. But what's cool, when you go down to Mexico, you can pick up these counterfeit Oakleys. But the problem is, they're counterfeits. They're not the real thing. And so I noticed when I put these blue counterfeit Oakleys on my face after about an hour of sweating, there was some blue paint that started to rub off. (laughs) They don't work right. You want the real thing. You want the real deal. We want the real God. We don't want to settle for a counterfeit. And when we succumb to the pleasures and and the wooing of this world, we hand ourselves over to a counterfeit. We want the real thing. Lastly, how did Jesus fulfill the office of prophet number three? With proclamation of the truth. Declaring the truth. Proclamation of the truth. Back to the garden where Adam should have proclaimed, as Jesus did, be gone, serpent. He did not. Serpent came in. Adam took a look. He's probably chilling in his recliner watching Alabama beat Georgia. That was for you, Clyde. I won't say what I really feel about Alabama. (laughs) The serpent comes in. Adam allowed him there. Adam's probably an earshot of the conversation that's going on. His wife is being seduced by the tempter. And then Adam comes over and gives in himself. Where he should have stood as a man of God... He shrunk and shrugged off his responsibility. But Jesus, he came boldly proclaiming the truth. Where Adam stood silent and went along, Jesus speaks the truth. It says this in Mark one twenty two, When he was teaching, it says, And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. This teacher that came, he came for the purpose to accomplish what Adam and Eve and Israel and you and I have failed to accomplish, to know, obey, and proclaim the truth of God. He taught as one who had authority, because Jesus is all authority. 
And it astonished his hearers. The Spirit-inspired truth of God's Word says this in, in our foundational text for this series. I love this verse. Revelation 1.8 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. It says this, Who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The beginning and the end, family. Eternal, it says, He is, He was, and He is to come. What does that tell us? You can't get away from Jesus. Skeptic, unbeliever in the room, you can't get away from Him. He's everywhere. Past, present, future. Says this in Mark 1, 14-15. Says Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, hear this, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. He says this, this is his instructions. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the good news about Jesus Christ. I want you to think back to now that manger scene. Baby Lord Jesus in, in the manger. is an infant. The cries, his, his cries ring out. Cries for his, his mother's milk. Her touch. They ring out in the night. And think about this same voice. Some 33 years later, would later proclaim these words, Repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand. And the same voice that would declare when family, he was nailed to a cross. When he was whipped. When he was beaten and he shed his blood. He would proclaim these words. He would declare this. It is finished. As Jesus gave up his last breath, he gave up his spirit. It says the, the temple curtain was torn from top to bottom. Access to God opened through who? Jesus. How did that begin? Because he declared, it is finished. And then... Three days later, in his, his resurrection, he would declare this truth. He would proclaim this to his closest followers, his disciples. He would say these words to them. He would say, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name, where? To all nations. He says, beginning in Jerusalem, and he says to his disciples, I say this to you today, you are witnesses of these things. You have witnessed the power of God in your life through his Holy Spirit, through his word. He says, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. He says, stay until you are clothed with power from on high. God or Jesus fulfills that when he sends his Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Jesus proclaimed 
the truth. And so what do we do with this? First, I want to address, I'm going to address two groups in the room. The first group I want to address is those of you who are skeptical of Christ or in just outright unbelief. I want to say it as simply as Jesus did. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus came and he lived perfectly in your place. Jesus went to the cross, substituting himself for us. He shed his blood. He died bodily. He was put in the grave. And on the third day, he rose from the dead in victory over sin and death. The word tells us that he ascended. He sits at the right hand of the Father. He's ruling and reigning. His word says that he's interceding. He's praying for you, that you would repent and believe in him. He's praying for you also, Christian. That's the nearness that we have to our Savior, that he is pleading on behalf of you right this moment. And so, Christian, now what do we do? brings us to our point of application for this morning is simply this. Know, trust, obey, and proclaim the Word of God. Know, trust, obey, and proclaim the Word of God. We have, family, been set free to carry out the task of of proclaiming the truth of God in all of creation. That's how Mark's gospel says the Great Commission, to go and, and share the gospel in all of creation. We spread His glory into the darkness, and shining His marvelous light. We are, as a local church, an outpost for the gospel, a beacon of light in the darkness. Paul says it this way. He gives us what we call a doxology at the end of Romans. He says this, I hope that this gives you encouragement in your calling. You are called. I'm not just called. You're all, we're all called together to do this. To know, trust, obey, and proclaim the Word of God. Paul says this, Now to Him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. The preaching about Christ's work should strengthen you, family. He says this, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, he says this, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings, has been made known, what, to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, he says this, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore, through Jesus Christ, he says, amen, right? We say, so be it. So be it. Let us be that church that Paul talks about here. Let us be a church that knows and trusts and obeys and proclaims the Word of God. As John says, in grace and 